Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about innovation and equity in global health. Well, this is a follow-on episode from the one we did just prior to AIDS 2022 in Montreal at the end of July 2022, where we discussed the role of laboratory-based and point-of-care diagnostics in the management of infectious disease. It's something I've become a bit obsessed about, both domestically in the United States and globally, as part of sustainable prevention and treatment strategies, as well, crucially, as part of the pandemic's preparation and response. It's the Cinderella, if you like, of infectious disease management. Well, we're recording this episode at the end of Infectious Disease Week, and I'm hugely grateful to this episode's sponsor, Roche Diagnostics, and particularly for again giving me the chance to chat with two of its top physicians, Tamar Techelitze and Ben Lebrot, both of whom, as you'll recall, have fascinating and hugely important careers in their response to uh, infectious disease. So, let me welcome our guest. First up, Dr. Tamar Techlitze. She's a disease partner at the Medical and Scientific Affairs at Roche Diagnostics, formerly Senior Policy Fellow at the UCB School of Public Health, and Health Counselor for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the country of Georgia. Tamar, welcome back. Thank you, Ben. I'm thrilled to be here. And we're also joined by the other Ben, Ben B, Dr. Benjamin Lebrot, Medical Affairs Leader for Infectious Disease at the Medical and Scientific Affairs at Roche Molecular. He's also a clinical professor at USC and, of course, founder and CEO of Floating Doctors, a non-profit medical mission that works with coastal relief groups to provide specific and needed clinical assistance. Ben, welcome back. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. So, I guess my first question for you both is, what have you been doing since we last met? Tamar, I know you've had quite the summer. You were back in Georgia, I think. How was that? Well, um, thank you, Ben, so much for this question. Um, it's it's a painful, um, what the situation we're all in. Um, the whole world, actually, not only Georgia, but of course, Georgia is affected also one of the uh, most. And I will go answering this question from the um, healthcare perspective. So it, like, you know, it, the situation have really significant impact and I would think that it will be even worse in terms of the access and delivery um, as we do have the massive number of people coming into Georgia, not only from Ukraine, but as well as from Russia. And um, I really care about and worry about the continuum of care, whether it's preventative such as PrEP or other screening or treatment for HIV patients or other diseases. I also fear that given this you know, situation in terms of the anxiety, uh, the PrEP or any other preventative services will be least on the people's minds because that's, you know, that's the situation we are in. Um, so it's really tough at the moment to predict uh, and it really depends you know, how robust is the health systems in Georgia and whether people can also afford to do the, like, you know, the, to access the care and uh, receive the care without driving them into poverty. Um, so uh, we are still in the middle of pandemic um, in Georgia, of course, uh, and not really fully recovered. Uh, it did really have the damaging effects also, of course, like in like rest of the world also in Georgia. So additionally, um, the, the winter is coming, right? Uh, we are in the fall now and uh, it's flu season. Uh, I don't know how 
like, you know, how ready we are in terms of the vaccination. Uh, how can we get the word out or like, you know, to everybody to come and do the vaccine or do we have enough vaccine? But the, like, you know, what I can tell, um, you know, the hope is uh, what is in my mind now and uh, we should really go above and beyond to ensure that all people, regardless of their status, whether they're Georgians or people coming inside, they access the healthcare at the time when they need it. Um, and uh, of course, the care also should be of the highest quality that we can provide, and it should be really uh, equitable to everybody. So, uh, and as the last point um, that I want to make is that um, I would think that many of the displaced individuals probably, um, like, you know, those again, like that's, the, I, I think I've mentioned this already, that that's the least in their minds. And we need to make sure that um, they not forgetting, you know, what treatment they were uh, on or what, like, you know, they were receiving, they continue to do that, to, to do so. I, I mean, it is, we're, we're so focused on the pressure on health systems, um, on, uh, you know, some of the countries in the European Union, Poland, Germany, um, the Czech and Slovak republics, particularly, we don't really think about, you know, in the, uh, the the sort of Central Asian sphere. I can only imagine how much pressure this must be putting uh, on the Georgian health system. Ah, oh, and Ben. Oh, very, um, oh sorry. Go yeah. ahead. Go no, ahead, no, Tamar. No, no, I just agreed with you. So, <laughs> uh, well, I think we'll probably come back to this um, as we talk about in more depth, the uh, the impact on uh, PrEP and, and treatment, uh, HIV treatment. Uh, and, and Ben, uh, what have you been up to this summer? If I recall, you took some time to be back with floating doctors. Uh, so I managed to spend a bit of time with uh, floating doctors. And I must say, still dealing with, you know, kind of the wreckage of the pandemic. Um, you know, the indigenous population we serve ended up suffering some pretty widespread starvation during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, despite, I mean, about 700,000 meal portions being handed out by my team down there, I mean, it was like a drop in the bucket. And uh, the number of kids, you know, with really like clinical malnutrition and stunting that are now on our active management list is five or six times what it was prior to the pandemic. I really believe that there may be an entire generation of shorter adults due to the stunting effect, you know, the starvation and food insecurity that came with the pandemic. And uh, a large number of chronic patients who would like, you know, heart disease, diabetes, epilepsy, HIV, who were previously, you know, being covered by the Ministry of Health were lost to care during the pandemic and ended up on our list. So it's been a, a very large additional workload. Uh, that being said, uh, in the midst of all this, you know, some really positive developments. The Ministry of Health and the Panamanian Center for Disease Control um, has made the commitment to support us being able to bring PrEP into these kind of remote communities. And of course, with some of the new tools, long-acting injections, this is the practical, like for the first time ever. So we're really excited about this as we've really seen HIV really skyrocket there over the last few years. You know, isn't it funny? I mean, we're, we're talking about different parts of the world, but but food insecurity, pressures on health systems, it, it it's all the same. I mean, one piece of good news from my side, which I'm so proud of, it's a country I've worked so extensively in over the years, is Zimbabwe, the first African country to approve long-acting PrEP. Kabele is approved in Zimbabwe. It's fantastic news. Ah, oh, well, 
Anyway, there you are uh, on the East Coast. Here am I on the West Coast. You've been at Infectious Disease Week. Um, so to borrow a, a phrase my father uh, uses from Shakespeare, what news from the Rialto? Tamar, what has been getting your attention? Uh, to be to be honest, I would start this that if we really are serious uh, about HIV epidemic, it's it's really critical that everyone who is sexually active know their HIV status. Everyone uh, with HIV receive also high quality care and treatment, uh, and that we really end the stigma around HIV and AIDS. And I know that you, your question was broad, and I'm specifically answering on HIV since this is how we started the conversation at the first time. But that's what what it is on, on my mind. And while speaking on HIV, it really is about all of the infectious diseases. Not all, but you know most that we are concerned about. And we see that we we mentioned antimicrobial before we even started recording. Um, whether it's monkeypox or, or COVID. So that like, you know, what we learned, like I will specifically talk about the HIV is that um, we have many, many gaps um, like that we are not really as prepared as we would like to be, especially in identifying everyone infected or linking everyone to uh, PrEP or like, you know, respective services. And we do see clearly that in this era, we still have 20, 35 actually thousand new infections every year. We have to start um, really focusing on implementing educational programs for all types of stakeholders, not only for the healthcare providers. For and then in healthcare providers, we can also need to go deep down and see who are they, who are the like you know those providers that really you know talk to the people and like, like you know patients. Uh, we you know now that uh, prep guidelines are also out uh, and we are absolutely thrilled to see it's like we said it's you know during our first recording that there is a lot to be done in educating primary care healthcare provider on new diagnostic algorithms that for many what we um, learned actually during this id conference as we also had the event uh on um on like you know we attended the event uh specifically you know how this algorithm works and a lot of questions even from the id uh, physicians because it's it's it looks like confusing for them so we need to simplify we need to educate you know and the id uh, physician should also get involved even more in terms of educating primary care physicians um of course we need to address um like gaps in the like you know what the testing cost and the coverage uh, issues are um, and uh, we also need to absolutely make sure that the patient have access to the services and without having any issues whatsoever, whether that's cost or the like transportation or um, that's just few of the things that came to my mind. Um, ben, you, you had mentioned that this was the perfect conference to nerd out on. So um, what, what, what came up for you that, that, uh, that caught your interest? Um, there's certainly a lot of really interesting new developments uh, in treatment, certainly. Um, you know, we've got the two-month cabotegravir, and it looks like there's a six-month, you know, kind of long-acting injection in the pipeline in phase three trials. There's a transdermal patch where the drug the, the drug itself is formed into tiny spikes made of crystals on the other side of the patch. I mean, it's just, there's impregnated, uh, you know, like the piperine rings. There's a lot of really interesting tools uh, kind of coming out, uh, you know, that are you know, going to be really handy. Um, aside from kind of a lot of the cool new stuff coming out, the other thing that I'm really hearing is this one overarching message of 
how our, our rhetoric really, our policies really have to match our rhetoric. You know, as we really, we hear a lot of, you know, U equals U, you know, nine, we're gonna, you know, end the epidemic. You know, when we have policies, you know, uh, that don't match that, it's really frustrating. And I could see that this is causing a lot of frustration for other ID docs that are there. Like, uh, simple things, you know, that just don't make sense, like to an ID doc, like uh, Fulton County Jail in Georgia um, in 2018 discontinued its, its, its diagnostic screening for HIV for almost all inmates coming in. They could opt out, but otherwise they were doing a rapid test on everyone who came in. And a study found that, well, in 2013, when they were doing that, they found 74 more infections than in 2018, where this more random testing procedure came in. And this change in testing you know, was estimated to cause eight, eight and a half additional HIV transmissions and almost $4 million in additional cost of the healthcare system. So a few dollars were saved on rapid tests, but some lives were destroyed and millions were lost. And as diagnostics is the gateway to care. Yeah, uh, I think we're really seeing the need to make our commitments really match our rhetoric. And while, of course, the, the part of me that finds that so dismaying, yeah, I will say that the attitude among the infectious disease docs here is really is really great. Yeah, you know, they're the number one the number one burnout specialty right now. You know, and still, you know, the people that are here that we're hearing speak really speak with a lot of dedication. There was an ID doc from Kentucky. I heard uh, make a comment in a in an industry education night. He was saying, you know, in relation to the new prep guidelines, you know that for his mostly Medicaid population, many of whom are elusive, he's a hero if he can get like a viral load testing at all. And he said, in his view, the new testing guidelines are maybe medically optimal, but in his, not very practical for his setting, even though they've just gotten a very large funding grant, it was like a drop in the bucket to achieve that. And, but I think he actually said, and if he's listening, I apologize for you know butchering uh, what you said, but he said something like, I mean, it's totally impossible I mean, of course, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to implement prep. You know, like I'm definitely doing it. And uh, this kind of this is totally impossible. But hold my beer because I'm going to do this anyway. Um, hold my beer, love it. <laughs> you know, it was a really, I it was it was really great to see if we see that kind of commitment. You know, at all levels, from the top down to docs. You know, like him, really at the tip of the spear for this kind of thing. I think we're really going to be able to make some progress. But we do have to close that gap between rhetoric and policy. Well, closing the gap between rhetoric and policy, and you've both been very gracious uh, and not asked me to comment about what is going on in the United Kingdom. But there was, uh, just at the moment, but there is one thing that I think, uh, to both of your points, really shook all of us, and that was that the, uh, uh, the uh, health secretary uh, in the United Kingdom was trying to open up availability of... Um, and, pardon me, antibiotics. Um, and she was suggesting that, you know, you could get them without prescription and that, um, you know, she even reported that, you know, she was giving friends and family leftovers of her own pills. Um, and, you know, when we talk about antimicrobial resistance, right, right, I can see Ben putting his hand over his head. Oh, um, yeah, just amazing. Speaks to the need for policy and practice to be so, so clearly, clearly linked in. I was in Puerto Rico last week for the US Conference on AIDS, which was, I think, more of a community, a community-based conference. Um, 
But it really struck me that while a lot of the attention was on the excitement of um, long acting and prep, there was really next to no conversation about the diagnostics infrastructure that's needed to support that. And I know that's really the key theme of this podcast, but I, I really think we've, as policymakers and advocates, need to do much more. And, and I guess this is the nice way of kicking into the, the conversation about um, diagnostic pathways as an, as an entry point for uh, prevention care and treatment in infectious disease, particularly HIV, but not only. And, and I just, to kick off, I just wonder, Tamar, maybe I could start with you. Why do you think we have such a hard time getting diagnostics to the top of the policy agenda? Uh, so diagnostic is really most important if you ask me, and we talked about this but before. I'm really glad you asked this question. It's it's actually plays the crucial role in the prevention and treatment. It's uh, it, it's like in the middle of the gateway, whether we link people to care or link people to uh, treatment. I think awareness is one of the top of the things for the policymakers that they need to realize that it, like you know, it's so important that we identify first of all people if we are serious about the elimination of any of the diseases, and um, HIV is no different. Um, so with the cure continuum and testing, uh, you know, when you uh, screen individual, you link them to care uh, if they're positive, um, and then you link them to. Um, uh, PrEP if they, uh, you know, uh, want to take PrEP or you think that, you know, they should take PrEP. But uh, the point is that that's the only way, it's the only way you can really keep the transmission down. And of course, uh, very important also, equally important, I would say that sustainability and consistency in approach, it's, it's very necessary if we're serious about it. Um, until you, of course, reach the goal and even beyond. Um, and we witnessed how aware everyone was about HIV a few decades ago, right? Uh, because we were consistent with the messaging about how dangerous the virus was. And now HIV is under like forgotten diseases list. And we need to, and policymakers need to like, you know, really realize that. And we need to make every effort possible to put it under the rare diseases list. So um, we need to do it again with the messaging and education, and that involves all stakeholders, including the uh, policymakers. And in we, again, I mean all of us, HCPs, the patients, the payers, the private sectors, um, the advocacy groups, the governments. So that's all of our responsibility. And uh, if we are right with the messaging, I would say that we will not be asking this why it's not on the top of the list for the policymakers as well. Ben, you mentioned new PrEP guidance coming out um, and that there were discussions about that at ID Week, Infectious Disease Week. Um, where do diagnostics fit into that, do you think? Well, I mean, as Tamar mentioned, it's really the gateway to care, not only to entry of care, but to maintaining people on care, you know, to managing their care. So it's not like you get your test and then you can get, and then you don't need any more testing, right? So, and especially with more elusive patient populations, um, you know, uh, hardly reached populations. I really loved you know that uh, that comment that you heard about the difference between hard to reach versus hardly reached. Um, I think I'm going to start using that exclusively from now on. Um, you know, uh, 
the, you know, the, you know, if you're trying to save as, you know, Fulton County Jail, a few pennies on, you know, tests like that, or even, even dollars, the result is ultimately usually a much greater economic impact. You know, you talk about, you know, a couple of extra dollars for a test, you miss one, you know, new case, you know, or you miss a case that causes one new transmission. There's another, you know, 300, 400,000, you know, to manage that on average, to manage that patient, you know, over their lifetime, sometimes much, much more. You know, so I think it might just be the diagnostic, you know, treatment is sort of sexy. Yeah, treatment, you know, you've got someone on treatment, you know, diagnosis, you've just highlighted like the, and confirmed a problem. So, you know, most people prefer to be able to say, here's the solution. And of course, diagnostics is the gateway to the solution. And, but I think it's sometimes dismaying, you know, the more people you test, the more people you find. So it also makes, it also causes the problem to appear bigger. Maybe that's a little discouraging. But certainly, uh, we, you know, the, like the resources that are being devoted toward treatment, we're not seeing that you know, as much with resources being devoted towards testing. And so you've got this great treatment tools that can't be used because the testing isn't available. Or, or worse, they may be used and used inappropriately. Um, yeah. In Puerto Rico, I was I met with a doctor who is um, who runs a federally qualified health center in one of the southern states, uh, I think in Mississippi. And, and she said to me that in the past, you know, the priority was to get simple point of care tests to everybody. And then if there were complexities, you know, if, if you had false positives or false negatives, then you would sort of go to the reference laboratory for, for further testing. But, but now she feels in the context of um, long acting um, antiretroviral therapy for both PrEP uh, and treatment, that the need actually up front is to have access to the more uh, complicated, more detailed laboratory tests with, you know, high throughput um, and greater sensitivity. So you can decide whether with your patient, whether long acting is right for them. And I just, I, I, I suppose that was a bit of an aha moment for me. And I just wondered, you know, how you both reflected on that. Tamara, I don't know what you think. Um, it's, it's an, like, you know, it's very important that we, uh, pay attention and very close attention, what testing we are using, especially, uh, when we have now this PrEP era and, uh, people are getting, whether on oral PrEP and, or Capotegravir, which is the long acting, and we will see that more, uh, PrEP choices will be on the market soon. And that's really delightful. But at the same time, we should not forget that the testing is key and what kind of testing you do, because for example, if you do the testing, like you mentioned, the point of care and the person is on PrEP and then, uh, for example, long acting PrEP and this person gets uh, HIV, you may not diagnose this person early enough and you may be uh, putting this person actually at risk to have the resistance towards the first regimen drugs. Uh, and that will be the case, for example, for cabotegravir. Um, so it's extremely important that um, we are aware, you know, what testing and what testing algorithm tells us and really go with the recommendation. Um, and they, 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 this is like, you know, the advanced testing, which we call PCR. So it's absolutely critical that when per person is on PrEP, they do both immunoassay as well as the uh, advanced testing, not just to ensure that this person uh, is not like did not catch the HIV. Um, and, and I wanted to get onto the question about for who PrEP should be available. 
Um, and I know this is something, Ben, in preparing for the uh, podcast, you and I were giving some some you know, significant conversation to. I'm thinking of another presentation I saw in Puerto Rico where um, uh, a physician from Missouri this time um, expressed the view that she felt that PrEP should be available to anyone who has sex. Um, therefore, you know, diagnostics um, uh, to confirm that they're not HIV positive before they start PrEP. And she said, you know, that's everybody. It includes my mother, who lives in a retirement community in Florida. Um, and she went there. She, uh, she uh, you know, raised the issue with her mum. There are lots of um, very friendly gentlemen who are fond of the company of ladies, uh, she said in the retirement community. So she talked about PrEP and HIV testing with her mum. Her mum wouldn't talk to her for six weeks afterwards, but nonetheless, uh, it was an important thing to do. So, Ben, US, I suppose, guesstimates say that around 1.2 million people should have access to PrEP. But how accurate is that figure? How was it reached? And what should we really be thinking about? I'm so glad you asked that question because if you look anywhere in the literature, and I heard this number four or five times yesterday, um, even in the conference, it was an estimated 1.2 million people in the United States could benefit from being on PrEP. And that number just seemed, I was just curious where that number came from. It seemed a little bit low. Um, like 1.2 million can benefit from PrEP, eh? And I was like, well, there's 1.3 million incarcerated men right now um, there's uh, perhaps, I think it was about up to about 5% of the U.S. male adult population um, who might identify as either being you know, only or predominantly attracted to men. Um, there's oh, about 30%, depending who you ask, uh, of women may engage in anal sex. You know, there's a real, I feel like our messaging is really, it's, we've almost gone back to like, this is a gay disease. If you look at a lot of the ads for PrEP, it's all—it's heavily focused, like you know, male male couples. And uh, an interesting article just came out in Medscape entitled "Are You Putting Your Female Patients at Risk by Not Talking to Them About Anal Sex?" And I asked a number of colleagues uh, if their their you know their primary care providers had had these kinds of conversations with them. Most of them said their primary care providers hadn't even talked to them about their sex lives at all. But I went back to that 1.2 million number, and it comes from, as far as I think that its earliest appearance in the literature is from a 2015 study um, that was posted by the CDC. And I think some of the key takeaways from that are that 1.2 million was arrived at going, well, an estimated one in four sexually active adult, HIV negative adult men who have sex with men. So they were saying of the men who have sex with men in the US, one in four could benefit from PrEP. And I'm not sure that I agree with that, you know, especially in the context of, you know, like condom use. Um, I actually saw a terrifying statistic recently um, that said that condomless sex among, you know, male-male encounters in the U.S. has actually decreased from about 50%, oh, sorry, has increased from about 50% to about 70%, 72%. So approximately 72% of MSM encounters are unprotected. And perhaps it's not surprising that, uh, you know, things like chlamydia and gonorrhea and other STIs, you know, have really been on the rise. I mean, that should be a real red flag to us in terms of the risk, you know, and perhaps that the number of people at risk, you know, should really be updated. 
Um, I was, I mean, I was, I just did back of the envelope calculations going, all right, there's this many incarcerated men. There's approximately this many, um, sexually active men who have sex with men in the United States. Uh, this many who are having condomless sex, um, this many heterosexual, you know, among heterosexual couples, uh, condom use, you know, depending who you ask is around 50%. And, you know, we really have to look at this, you know, we've talked about at risk groups. Right, we're going to focus on this group, and not only is that a bit stigmatizing, um, I think it's also fundamentally the wrong approach. Yes, if you belong to a certain group, you are probably statistically more likely to be engaging in certain behaviors that are riskier. If you're an IV drug user, you're certainly statistically more likely to engage in sharing needles than someone who doesn't use IV drugs. But you know, the if you if you have an IV drug user who's celibate and doesn't share needles they're at less risk than a heterosexual woman who has a casual encounter and doesn't wear a condom. So, you know, when I looked at this one point, I think it would be more like, it's not 1.2 million, you know, some back of the envelope calculations put that at probably more like 10 or 12 million at least. Because if you're having sex and it's un especially unprotected sex, you're at risk. End of story, you know, and focusing on the behaviors that put you at risk, not belonging to a group, but engaging in behaviors, I think might be a more appropriate messaging, you know, than saying like, we're, this is for, this is for gay men. Well, though, this is for anyone who's engaging in unprotected, either, you know, vaginal or anal intercourse, right? Now, it reminds me, and I would be, I would be remiss in not saying this, but um, observations and review of evidence by um, the European Britain-based um, advocate and policymaker Gus Cairns, who noted that for for people who are in the continuum of prevention and care, um, you know the appearance of sexually transmitted diseases um, in a world of U equals U and and regular diagnostic testing for prevention and and use of PrEP, you know those rates go down. But that's because they're aware and have the information. It's where people are not connected to the continuum that that you start to get the problem. And I, I guess, Tamar, from the health policy perspective, um, you know, the order of magnitude of PrEP availability that Ben is referring to, how realistic, how possible is that from a public health and policy perspective? Uh, first of all, thank you uh, both, Ben, uh, for the first question that um, Ben probably asked of Bill so since you both, Ben. Um, because this is like, you know, it, it's really puzzling, you know, how this is possible that we even thought that it's only 1.2 million, right? So I don't know where this number coming from, but definitely it's a lot more. In terms of the answering your question, Ben, um, yes, absolutely, it's possible. Everything is possible when you have the political will and you put your mind into it and really uh, do the right communication and the messaging, you know, whether that you need to update the policies or like implement, you know, certain things. However, I could see the challenges as well. Um, and it really, um, you know, comes back to the, you know, are we ready in terms of the infrastructure and what, you know, bandwidth we have? How much time, for example, uh, we can allot to the patient because, you know, the, the, the doctors need to get involved in terms of, you know, allotting, allotting you know, more time to the patients. Uh, and we know that right now it's really like, you know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, but we need to ensure that this this is like, you know, really, uh, you know, more. And uh, every every patient is asked, you know, for example, the sexual history. And uh, we, we, sh we should not ask, you know, are you at risk? 
because I don't even think this is like positive question. What do you mean, right? So you should probably be more open and uh, hearing from the patient what kind of behavior, like Ben said before, uh, this patient is, or even without asking any behavior, just, you know, um, telling about the PrEP and HIV, uh, et cetera, right? Just a simple example is that we said already that it's forgotten disease. And a lot of the young population that I've been asking around, they don't even know what the HIV really is because, you know, they, they, I think it doesn't really exist or like it exists, but it's not not a big deal. So this should be, you know, really emphasized. So um, coming back to the, you know, um, question, uh, Ben, I think, yes, it is possible. We need to make sure that we clear barriers to access the testing. And uh, it should be like, you know, all about also health equity, uh, making sure that providers are aware of uh, the updating algorithms uh, and then, you know, pull in into the broader population for sure. Uh, also, we need to help the healthcare prof professionals understand how and when, you know, they need to be testing in general and in relations to PrEP also, like, you know, like how to talk with the patients. Um, we also need to do the more partnerships with communities because communities like are the, the primary voice. They, they are the ones that we need to engage. They should be our primary partners. Um, so... I think it's possible, of course. Uh, not, not. I, I think it's definitely. Um, it's only we saw the COVID example also. We, we, we did like you know things in a matter of months or like you know when, when like even vaccines, right? It for, for in my mind it was impossible because I knew that if, like you know to develop any vaccine it takes years, but yet you know when everybody's mobilized, uh, when there is a will. Uh, when there is a panic, which is not a good thing, but you know that's that's the reality. Um, it, it, it made it uh, possible. So, yeah. And how do you how do you um, maintain a sense of emergency over the long term? It's it 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 goes to the heart of the difficulties of human behaviour. But just one other policy question uh, before we move on. You at AIDS twenty twenty two. I I think we were all looking for. Um, proof points to show that um, uh, HIV testing was incorporated into the overall care continuum, the overall interactions that people have with health facilities. Um, and there was one presentation in particular that had highlighted that, I guess, possibly for cost saving or possibly because the sense was that HIV is no longer uh, the public health challenge that it used to be. Um, that routine HIV tests are not being offered in the emergency room setting. And I, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Ben, could I start with you? I mean, how much sense does that really make? I mean, on the one hand, it makes a lot of sense because you can imagine what kind of bandwidth, you know, emergency room doctors or even primary care physicians have for, you know, all of this extra stuff, right? On the other hand, it's really frustrating, you know, because especially for many populations that are hardly reached, their most common intersection with the healthcare, healthcare world is through the ER, you know, often using it as their primary care. And uh, you hate to see, it's frustrating if there's an issue that requires a solution for which a solution doesn't exist. Yeah, but it's much more frustrating when there are opportunities that are missed. And I, I always feel like, not doing that kind of screening in the ER 
for and the, the paper that we're referring to was a really interesting paper at AIDS 2022, where they went back and looked at all these emergency room records, people presenting for you know broken wrist, everything. And they went, huh, looking back at this now, this person probably should have been offered a test, this person, this person, this person. And they went back and saw what percent of those people later turned up in the healthcare system with HIV. And it was a significant percentage you know, that were, you know, was a missed opportunity to connect them to care. And, uh, you know, it's a lot like, imagine that you, you know, you spend a lot of time organizing beach cleanups and putting trash cans on the beach and putting up posters showing where to, and then you, you made it really, you put a lot of tools in place so that people wouldn't litter on the beach. And then you watch someone else walk right past a piece of trash on the ground on their way to the trash can and not pick it up and bring it with them. It was sort of that kind of feeling of like, oh, you're so close. The, the opportunity was there without that much extra effort. You know, and that's what was, you know, it's, it's so hard, you know, to actually get enough testing out, especially to certain patient groups. So when you had an opportunity like that that's missed, it's just, you know, it's just frustrating. And, and I guess that very neatly gets us into the question of the role of the broader healthcare uh, professional community in offering HIV testing and incre you know increasingly they are going to be called upon to provide uh, prep um, and and just what we have to do around um, educating and um, and and giving them some experience of of knowing what to do uh, with prep we're going to be relying if we're going to look at this kind of uh, order of magnitude increase in the availability of prep we're going to be we're going to be looking at um nurse practitioners primary healthcare physicians playing a much greater role and uh, tamar I, I i wondered what your thoughts are about how in the united states we go around mobilizing and educating and preparing our public health prof or our, our healthcare frontline healthcare professionals uh for this for this new massive rollout of prep i uh, i would first what comes to my mind is education um and this is uh, and the second what comes you know right away is like it's everybody's responsibility um and we, we uh, as an industry also we're heavily already engaged you know into the education as much as we can but we need to get our messaging and the word out uh, all of the stakeholders. And that also includes the medical associations, the even medical schools. Uh, it, we need to also teach medical students and the fellows about the, you know, testing, you know, wh wh why this testing, for example, and all this, you know, um, uh, strategies, you know, how to approach the patients. In terms of the primary care physicians, and you, you said it right, uh, during, you know, we, we actually mentioned it during the conversation that now that uh, PrEP will be offered, uh, not only by ID uh, physicians, luckily, but uh, and I'm really delighted about this, but also like like primary care physicians, the nurse practitioners, even pharmacists. This is incredible, but are they ready? No, uh, because it, it's complicated algorithm. We mentioned it. It's uh, complicated even for the ID physicians. And Ben uh, brought the example. And we ID doctors also need to get heavily involved to educate the primary care physician because they are the ones who have seen these patients. They are the ones who have the data in front of them and they can easily explain easier, I would say, not maybe easier, easier than maybe other, uh, like, you know, some other stakeholders. Um, but education will be my 
uh, main uh, probably targets uh, and uh, for all of the stakeholders. Um, so we all are prepared and we all know what the importance, the approach uh, and how we can make it also sustainable to reach the goal. And I'm, I'm sort of reflecting on a comment you made earlier, Tamar, about um, at-risk uh, behaviours and, you, you know, asking people, so are you at risk of HIV? I mean, the answer is going to be no, isn't it? And, and, and that brings us to, you know, both how we educate and prepare our, um, our frontline healthcare professionals, but also how we think about the populations that we need to be reaching out to. Ben, to your point earlier about um, hardly reached communities, and, and, and I have to say that that came to me. I got chided by a physician who uh, is based in Chicago. She's a clinical um, psychologist, but she's also part of the San Francisco Community Health Center that I'm the chair of. And uh, she told me off for using the word um, hard to reach populations. She said, no, Ben, you know, these are hardly reached populations. The issue is not that they have found themselves to be disconnected from care. It's that the healthcare facilities, the healthcare authorities themselves haven't adequately made found ways to engage them um, appropriately. So um, I, I, I hear you picking up on hardly reached populations. And I just wonder why, why that shift resonates with you. I think it's because I spent so much time working with quite literally hard, hardly reached populations uh, who were you know, isolated by geography you know, on the other side of a jungle covered mountain. Um, and where you know, there's that great expression, you know, if, the, if Muhammad could not come to the mountain, the mountain must come to Muhammad. Right. Yeah. Uh, we like to, you know, we like to really kind of try and put as much personal responsibility on being able to participate in care onto patients. Like that's empowering for patients. But often that actually really starts with, or it should start with the health system uh, and other stakeholders reaching out and helping connect that patient to care, you know, because many patients who are hardly reached face unbelievable barriers to accessing care. And for those patients, it, it it probably should be the primary responsibility, not of the patient, but of the healthcare system to reach out and help them overcome those barriers, especially if it's the healthcare system that is saying, we are going to end the epidemic. If we're taking the responsibility of ending the epidemic, that means that we really have a responsibility to help connect these hardly reached patients to care. Uh, going back to the example of, you know, like nursing homes, you know, there's often this kind of ageist assumption that, that no sexual activity occurs after a certain age. And people who have worked in, you know, elderly populations know that that's really not the case. And that there is a lot more sexual activity among like elderly populations than one would imagine. And, uh, you know, we ignore that population because of certain ageist assumptions, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, it really is the responsibility of the healthcare world to be the one reaching out, you know, uh, especially to patients who really have significant barriers you know, or knowledge gaps because they've been ignored you know, for so long. I mean, it's right across the board, isn't it? it it's uh, back to this question of, of, you know, people who have sex. Um, and that forces us to have some very difficult conversations. Um, 
I, I was struck by some of the recent articles that um, the journalist Ben Ryan has been uh, writing for the New York Times uh, and, and for others, um, including a, a very um, uh, vigorous set of conversations on Twitter about um, y y focusing not so much on at-risk populations, but being really direct about at-risk behaviours. And he was thinking particularly about monkeypox. And while it's absolutely the case that the, the majority, the very large majority of cases in the industrialised world are in men who have sex with men, he, he came down to the fact that it's very specific behaviours um, and that we needed to be talking about those. And so there might well be um, young heterosexual couples who also needed to be aware of monkeypox and avail themselves of the vaccine. And, and again, I think, Tamar, it comes down to what the policy approach has to be. Um, I mean, how do we get information about what is essentially very private and sensitive um, uh, behaviours in whatever age we are, how do we get that across in a way that enables people to make changes to their behavior? Um, this is the great question, Ben. Um, I, you know, I will go back and say that we need to stop looking at the groups. Um, this is like in my mind also, it's wrong. You, it's, it's the behavior that sometimes, you know, puts you at risk, right? Uh, and that you may have it once in your lifetime, you, you may have it many times in your lifetime, but it doesn't make you in certain groups, um, right? And to come back also to another issue, um, the monkeypox can be transmitted in another ways as well. And we all know that it's not sexually transmitted diseases, disease only. But most important is the communication to, to the public. And most important is the perception. We know that, you know, we may perceive something and then it's like in our head and, you know, nothing you can do about it. So, and we witnessed it also during the COVID, how the communication affected people's mindset and how dangerous that could be, you know, uh, if, if uh, it's the wrong messaging, especially from the, either it's from the leadership or leadership in the public health or, uh, from from like you know healthcare providers, all right. So we we need to be really careful what kind of wordings we we use, how we group people. Uh, do we even need to group people? Let's talk about the disease. Let's explain this to the public that this is transmitted by this, this, and this ways. And um, you know, be careful without saying that this is you know certain people groups disease, and they need to be mindful. So that's um, that's. Key for me is the communication and the messaging, uh, and really, uh, you know, everybody should be aware as much as possible. If there is a danger in the community, it's everybody's problem. Um, so we need to just make sure that the people are aware of this danger uh, equally. So one last question: There's there's sort of no getting away from this. Um, although I really don't want this to become a theological or metaphysical conversation. Um, Recently, of course, there was a ruling in Texas that um, uh, that allowed employers not to provide PrEP uh, in services, um, particularly in the Affordable Care Act, um, as it mandates, um, sorry, as, as it violates, sorry, religious freedom, and that there might be employers for whom um, 
you know, sexual behavior between men who have sex with men, sexual behavior that involves anal sex, period, that this might be something that they have religious opposition to. And, and not to get into the details of the ruling itself, but more about how you both feel that practitioners, experts like yourselves, can really engage with policymakers to make sure, as far as possible, that decisions are rooted in evidence um, and, uh, and, and, and perhaps not in, um, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, pre-thought uh, pre through um, uh, prejudices or, or, or values that perhaps, while important, don't necessarily root themselves in public health behaviour for a broader community. Wow, I was doing my best there, Tamar, to be British and diplomatic. I don't know if I, if I achieved that or not, but wow, what a mealy-mouthed way of saying it. What do you think? Um, yeah, from the public, um, you know, it comes like down to the, again, uh, what we see um, and what's happening um, also in other places, because we kind of want everybody to be treated equally, right? If one uh, state goes with another ruling, it's it's kind of, you know, dangerous from the public health perspective because we, we are talking about the people also in this that, that state that may um, need, you know, like another messaging, not me. I, I, I'm sure they, um, I want also to go as diplomatic as possible, um, but it's just, you know, from the public health perspective, it's really dangerous um, because we want to eradicate HIV transmission and the only way we can do that it's just to do three things one is to test people to identify that they are hiv infected link them to the care if they are positives uh, treatment i mean and link them to prep services uh if patient needs and um and if we believe also to advise you know uh patient that, that there are such choices on the market so that's the only way we can achieve this mm. um so i, I think uh, from public health perspective we need to be really mindful how we approach some of the things uh, and ben sort of final word to you on this i mean floating doctors as well as providing the services that communities and relief agencies ask you to provide you've had to negotiate with authorities um and again coming back to this example in panama where the authorities approached you to support them in providing PrEP to indigenous communities. How do you go about having those conversations? You mean with uh, the Ministry of Health yeah. or patients or both? Uh, with the Ministry of Health at the policy level. Oh, sure. So this is where the relationship that end operators have with the patients, you know, can provide real value to ministries, you know, because we we will probably go about this by having lots of long conversations. And this is where I'm a little bit spoiled. You know, we don't have 15 minute consult limits, you know, so it could be quite common that a consult could last for an hour, which really gives us a lot of time. It might be in someone's home as well. So it really creates a lot of opportunity for, you know, not only transmitting information, but gathering information you know, that's very important to then merge with, you know, the same information we're gathering from other patients to get a real sense of like, well, what, what's the real, what are the real specific barriers and opportunities here and communicating those. So we will be able to really, you know, kind of provide to the Ministry of Health. Okay, so we think that 
the these are the solutions for prep that are going to work well like these communities i think the oral prep is going to be more ideal these communities possibly the injection yeah you know, we're going to be able to provide more micro level you know kind of feedback yeah you know, that the ministry of health may just may not have access to because they're just not sitting down with these patients day after day you know for an hour at a time in these very remote settings and uh, i think this is a similar a similar situation where you know the physicians really the physicians in the us generally don't have a particularly strong voice in the creation of policy and i think i have a particular perspective on this because of course i trained in ireland and i was a member of a medical union and i will never forget as an intern um, our employer, the government, I think, said something like, um, guys, we're going to have you do, I think it was like four nights of call every week plus post-call. And our union essentially went, we'll walk out tomorrow. And the uh, government, all right, two nights of call. And I remember having this aha moment going, oh, so this is this is what it's like when physicians actually have you know, a strong policy voice where they can really impact policy. And... Uh, you know, I think physicians in the U.S., you know, many physicians for a long time have really focused on taking care of patients and they've left a lot of policy decisions to non-physicians. And this is often where you get this disconnect. So in this in the case in Texas, I think this is a really good example of where physicians, healthcare workers, infectious disease docs and society can really, you know, this is where they can leverage their knowledge and convert that knowledge that they have into a voice you know, that can really advocate. This is not just about providing treatment, you know, now. This is now about advocacy, about bringing information that's in the heads of these doctors out into the public discourse and making sure that policymakers, you know, have that information, you know, so that they can make policy decisions that align with, you know, the real world current landscape. Well, you've, you've, I realize that we are well past the top of the hour and you have indulged me very, very graciously in um, uh, getting to getting into more detail about the opportunities and challenges of um, the role of diagnostics in this new era of HIV management. Um, but sort of stepping out of this a bit, just to wrap up, um, Again, how are you keeping sane? What have you been binge watching or reading or or doing? Um, Tamar, what, what's your escape route at the moment? Uh, actually, for me, it's more like, again, um, it's what keeps me sane is to have the hope. Um, and I hope uh, about that, um, like we can do so many things. And I said it also the previous time, and I remember that uh, conversation, but now I see that, you know, we are getting united more and more globally. And that's really gives me the hope. That means that to me, that uh, we kind of get into the realization even more that the health is the human right. And we are all, all equally entitled to access the services. And I really, really hope that during my lifetime, it will be, I will witness this uh, and I will witness also the paradigm change, uh, which again means that uh, we will not be thinking about, you know, oh, I, you know, health is not really given to me. I, I need to fight for it. Um, so that's what keeps me the same uh, these days. Uh, thank you. And Ben, what is, what is inspiring you? You know, it's funny. I didn't know what tomorrow was going to say. And it's, it's so similar. You know, uh, especially in the work that I've done, I feel like I've had a ringside seat to some pretty, 
pretty awful things that humans can do to each other. And uh, alongside that, though, I keep encountering men and women who are usually toiling in complete obscurity, um, who really refuse to give up the notion that you know the world is a fine place and worth fighting for and do so and they just never give up expressing their skills and talents in a way that is compassionate you know and of service and you know when you, you meet these people you know once you they're no longer in your bit you still know that they're out there and knowing that they're out there you know always gives me gives me so much hope you know, uh, and seeing what the world is capable of when it does come together yeah, uh, the number of people reaching out across borders, across barriers, um, really, it's encouraging. Yeah, uh, it's it's a struggle, but I think yeah, I think we're I think we're not we're all in this together. Yeah, uh, we're not alone. And uh, I mean, of course, the are you said what keeps you sane presupposes that I am sane. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I'm just assuming. <laughs> that my you, wife, she might. <laughs> I'm assuming that you are. Um, and day. and it really strikes me that. Um, healthcare professionals, physicians like yourselves, you, know, you really are a beacon of hope in this difficult time. So, you know, Tamar, Ben, thank you both very much. As we said last time, you are both shots in the arm. Thank you, Ben. Absolutely. Um, you know, delightful conversation, maybe a little bit sad, um, you know, in many areas that we touched. Um, we It's pain points for all three of us, I know, but it's it's good to be out there uh, with you, especially, and um, have these honest conversations. Yeah, I thank you again so much for having us on. And a constant series of crises, but a constant series of opportunities, and a lot of people who, like that ID doctor, who was like, you know, it's totally impossible, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, it's totally impossible, but I'm definitely doing it. Yeah. And as long as that attitude is out there, you know, we're gonna we'll get there. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Tamar and to Ben, and thank you to Roche Diagnostics for sponsoring the episode. Thanks also to our director, Erica Spera of Newsdoc Media. And finally, a big thanks to you. You can find us on all podcast platforms, subscribe and give us five stars, and check out our YouTube channel. Hit those like and subscribe buttons to help us spread the word. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.